This is the AI Health Podcast, where we explore the ways in which AI will transform healthcare, biotech, and medicine through conversations with entrepreneurs, investors, and scientists. Hey, I'm your co-host Pranav Rajpurkar. And I'm Adrielle Saporta. And you're listening to the AI Health Podcast. And this is the last episode of the first season of our show. That's crazy. This is 25 episodes after we started. Wow. And we will be back with season two in the fall. So definitely stay tuned and, and follow us on Twitter if you want to find out exactly when. But to help us with our season two, we'd love to hear from you guys. So we've put together a really short survey asking what you'd like about the show, what you don't like about the show, and it'd be really helpful for us to hear from you. So please do take a minute to pause the episode right now if you can and visit bit.ly slash the AI health podcast to help with this. That's bit.ly slash the AI health podcast, no spaces. So now onto our episode for today. We'll be chatting with our guest today, Dr. Daphne Kohler. Daphne Kohler has been a pioneer at the intersection of machine learning and biopharma as a Stanford University professor, longtime machine learning researcher, and entrepreneur. We'll chat with Daphne today about her company in Citro. Awesome. I thought it would be useful before our conversation to give our listeners a little bit of a background into some of the technical aspects of what Incitro does. That sounds like a great plan. All right. So shall we start by talking about induced pluripotent stem cells? <laughs> wow. I don't know where you got that from, but yes, of course. So first you get normal cells from the human body. So like cells from your skin, and then you process those cells so that they become a lot like stem cells that you'd find in an embryo. And that's like an early unformed stage where anything is possible. And so you can transform those stem cells into a whole new type of cell that you want to study. Mm. And why is that useful? Okay. So let's say that you want to see whether a medicine helps with some neurological disease, but you don't exactly have a lot of spare brain cells lying around from donors. Well, you can much more easily get some cells from a person's skin and then process them to become brain cells instead. And then voila, you have a model of cells in their brain and you can perform real chemical tests and assays on those cells to get a sense of if your medicine is likely to work. So we're talking about a cluster of cells that fit in a test tube, and that's not nearly enough to make up a real brain. So we can ask, how good is this model? Yeah, so that's a great question. And you're right that these models can't recapitulate or, or capture all of the complex processes in a full-blown human body. But they can be more true to the human body than, say, lab rats, which aren't human at all. And since currently a lot of medical treatments are tested in animal models, that means that these induced pluripotent stem cells can actually really improve things and give researchers a better idea of how their drugs will affect real patients. Mm. So they can be better at showing how drugs will interact with targets? Exactly. And then actually, Pranav, can you remind us quickly about what a target is? Yeah. So as a quick refresher, a target is some part of our biology, like a protein that's involved in a disease. And drugs try to affect those targets and modulate or modify their behavior in order to make patients healthier. And the more true to life your model is, the better your initial tests will be at predicting if your drug is successful. And so Dr. Kohler's company, Incitro, uses these induced pluripotent stem cells for drug discovery. But Incitro also uses machine learning. They do, because machine learning can be used to find targets for drugs to hit. For example, you can train a model to predict whether patients will have a disease or not, and then you can inspect that model to interpret it to figure out what the differentiating features really are between having the disease or not. And that can help you identify which targets you should aim for in which patients. But I imagine you run into the usual ML challenges, like how it can be hard to get a large amount of data with enough detail. Yeah, that's very true. And even if you do have a lot of really detailed data, your model might still pick up confounders, which are patterns that happen to correlate with your labels, but aren't actually part of the biology you want to study. Or worse, your model might learn to depend on artifacts 
which are patterns that probably shouldn't be there in the first place and interfere with your data, like lens flares if you're dealing with natural images. Because you don't want your model to depend on either confounders or artifacts, especially if you're going to then take your model apart and interpret it in order to improve your own understanding of biology. And so Dr. Kohler will speak with us today about how Incitro navigates those challenges and also uses business partnerships to get high quality data sets. I can't wait. So without further ado, let's talk with our guest, Dr. Daphne Kohler. So Daphne, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Pranav. Glad to be here. So you have been a pioneer at the intersection of machine learning and biopharma as a Stanford University professor, a longtime machine learning researcher, and entrepreneur. And you talk about bringing together these two worlds of machine learning and biopharma, and your company name, Incitro, is a mashup of in vitro and in silico, referencing the biological experiments done in the lab, the uh, experiments done on computers, so I want to start by asking you about this future. In a future in which you have machine learning combining with biopharma, what does that look like? I think we're actually in the midst of a transition into a field that I call digital biology, which is an incredible amalgamate of ideas from cell biology, from bioengineering, from machine learning, from engineering more broadly, really brought together to a point where we can interrogate biology at unprecedented fidelity and scale, interpret what we're seeing using techniques of data science and machine learning, and then writing biology using various tools that are emerging, such as CRISPR, to get biology to do things that it wouldn't normally do. We're seeing implications of this across multiple areas in Biopharma and human health is one such area, which is the one that we're in. But I see equal opportunity also emerging in areas like agriculture, biomaterials, energy. These are areas where we can really start to disentangle what we see in biological systems in whole new ways and then uh, use biology in the service of, of our goals. And I think it's a tremendous opportunity for us of which rethinking how uh, drug discovery is done is one important, but not the only application. In terms of the drug discovery application, what Incitro will be able to do, is able to do, is propose drug targets, predict how patients or specific groups of patients will respond to specific treatments. And I want to understand from you this technology a little more. Incitro's aim is to use in vitro systems or test tube experiments involving cells outside of the human body. How does this help inform which drug targets and which patients are gonna to respond to therapy? So the uh, cellular systems that we're building are ones that are derived from humans and are attempting to recapitulate to the extent that we can natural human biology. So for example, there's been a lot of work that's been done on cells from animal models. There's been uh, a bunch of work done on cancer cell lines. We're taking what are called induced pluripotent stem cells that are capturing the genetics of each and every one of us, and then are able to be differentiated into different fairly biologically plausible cellular systems. So I can take a Daphne skill set skin cell and turn it into a Daphne neuron or a Daphne cardiomyocyte. And those would capture what disease burden I have in my genetics, but see how it manifests in that particular cellular system. Conversely, someone else that has a different genetic burden of disease, their cells may look different and respond differently to various laboratory experiments. Now, it is reasonable to ask to what extent can you recapitulate a disease process in a single cell, to which I think there are several answers. One of them is that there are some diseases where there is a significant what's called cell autonomous component. That is a, at least a meaningful part of the biology of the disease does manifest in a single cell. Also the complexity of those cellular systems that we are building is increasing over time. Even the ability to do what I just described today was not possible maybe five to 10 years ago. Now it's 
something that a number of labs are already doing. We're also putting in place things that are co-culture systems where you have two or three cell types working together. There's these little things that are called organoids, which are little mini brains or little mini livers that recapitulate more of the complex intercellular interaction. So over time, I think the complexity of the systems that we're able to deploy is capturing more and more of what's relevant to human disease. The final thing I'll say is it is a model. And I think, what is it that Einstein said? All models are wrong and some are useful. Uh, this is a model that is wrong. It is nevertheless useful. Animal models are also wrong. Um, some of them are more useful than others, but they're clearly wrong because a mouse is just not a human being. The fact of the matter is we cannot do experiments in human beings. And so we need to come up with surrogates to the best we can. And I would say that there are a good number of biological processes and diseases that are probably better recapitulated in a cellular system than they are in an animal model. There's some that go the other way, and oftentimes you want to do both. A large part of why drugs fail is these models that we're using are very different from how things are working in an actual human. And this transition, one of the bets here is to use induced pluripotent stem cells, uh, which is a relatively new technology. I think it's 2006. Is there a reason that others haven't caught on to this approach of using induced pluripotent stem cells? I think it's not true that others haven't caught on to this approach. If you look, there are many hundreds of papers in the last few years that are using induced pluripotent stem cells for elucidating disease biology. Many of them are from academic labs, and even the ones that are not from academic labs are often done on relatively small numbers of different cell lineages. So you have one, two, or three kind of cases, a similar number of controls, and often come in with a preconceived notion of what it is that one should be looking to measure in those cells. The thing that we're trying to do differently is not that we're the first to use induced pluripotent stem cells, we're most definitely not, but rather... Uh, first of all, the application of machine learning in an unbiased way to the kinds of measurements that one can make from those cells so that you don't come in saying, I know exactly what to look for, and it's the accumulation of lipid droplets and hepatocytes. That is what I need to look for. That may be an important factor. It probably isn't the only important factor. So if we could really look at those cells and see what it is that distinguishes, for example, different genetic disease burden in those different cells, that is not something that others have really deployed machine learning. And of course, as we all know, machine learning is only as good as the data that you feed it in terms of both the quality and the quantity. So the other thing that we're trying to do differently is do this at a different scale and different level of fidelity so that the machine learning is actually getting the right data to provide you know, models that we believe in. And so that's really the thing that we're doing differently. It's not that we invented the use of induced pluripotent stem cells for disease model. One of the things, as you mentioned, that Incitra is doing differently is being able to generate your own data. What do you see as the biggest challenges with using data that's already been collected, let's say for human tissue specimens in order to be able to do the discovery work? So we actually do both. And one of the big successes that we actually had was in our work that we did with Gilead on NASH, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, which is a very prevalent liver disease. I think close to a quarter of the people in the world now have uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease that in many cases does progress to NASH. And it's a disease that while a large increasing prevalence is highly underdiagnosed because it's only ascertained using a liver biopsy sample. And that's not something that people just undergo lightly because it's not very pleasant. So when we started to work on this disease, the genetic basis for the disease was very poorly understood. And so we couldn't just say, oh, we're going to read the papers on the genetics of NASH and then just figure out how to model that in our cellular systems. We needed to work on some of the human data in order to understand the genetic basis for the disease. We had access for that, very luckily for us, to a large, relatively large clinical trial that Gilead had run in NASH, which unfortunately had failed from a clinical perspective, but was incredibly well executed from a data collection perspective. They had whole genome sequencing, they had histopathology at the beginning and end of the trial, RNA sequencing data, blood biomarkers, 
And long story short, by the appropriate use of machine learning techniques on the human data, specifically the histopathology and the RNA-seq, combined with the whole genome sequencing, we were able to elucidate novel genetic drivers for fibrotic progression in NASH, the progression of the liver to a fibrotic state, which is actually the clinical endpoint that the FDA cares about, with a data set that was actually highly underpowered, relatively speaking, because it only had about 550 patients worth of both images and, and whole genome sequencing. And the way we were able to do that is because it was such a high quality data set and because we applied machine learning to the histopathology rather than relying on the relatively coarse-grained pathologist scores that really didn't capture the full patient state in the four scores that the pathologist designs. So I think there is a really valuable opportunity in the use of human cohort data if it's of the right quality. So to answer the question that you actually asked, which is what are the challenges, oftentimes when uh, tackling these existing data sets, people just kind of mash up a bunch of small data sets from here and there and there and here, and they kind of create a big pile of stuff. And they say, oh, you know, this is enough data for me to now apply machine learning on. What, and what we found out in uh, machine learning in general, and even more so in modern day machine learning, that the more machine learning model is able to pick up on subtle signal, the more it's able to pick up on subtle artifact. And these mashed up data sets have so many artifacts and batch effects and confounders where the data set that you got from this source has a certain sort of statistical pattern to it that is quite distant from the statistical pattern, the data that you got from the other source. What you're really latching onto is data set variability rather than anything that is the true underlying biology. And so that's where we believe in using human cohort data. We believe you have to do it with great care and with high quality data. One of the promises with using machine learning for these kind of insights is we're able to use patterns that may not have been recognized by, let's say, pathologists on a slide. And we're also able to incorporate different layers of data, so genomic data in this case, and also um, the image on a slide. And there are different bets that are being made by different companies on which layers are more important than others. So how do you think of this problem? Are we going to live in a future in which we're going to have my DNA data and my RNA expression and my pathology data being collected used to make these uh, associations with uh, response to therapy, let's say, or are some layers going to be more important than others? I don't think that question can be answered in the general form because it really depends on what diagnosis or prognosis you're looking to make and the kinds of data that you would need to collect to evaluate osteoarthritis are very different from what you would need to diagnose you know, cancer and cancer metastasis. And so I don't think it's going to be a one-size-fits-all data set across all indications. You're going to need to figure out for your disease what data you can collect. And even there, I would say it's not going to be a one-size-fits-all because you would have the data that you collect from the normal healthy population, so to speak, to try and have early warning before disease advances too much versus what you would collect when you have someone that's already at high risk and then you're willing to undertake things that have a more invasive aspect and you wouldn't do that for the general population, either because of the cost of the patient's health or the cost of the uh, medical system. So there's not going to be a one size fits all. Human beings are complicated. Diseases are complicated. You're going to have to have a fit for purpose solution. I'd love to pivot to in situ as a business. So the field of using machine learning for drug development is becoming increasingly crowded. You know, we have startups like Recursion Pharma and Verge Genomics, as well as the big pharma companies like Novartis and Merck. And I'm curious how you think about competition in the space in general? Who wins? Is it the company that has the best technology or the best business model or the best partnerships? So first of all, I think it's important to realize that unlike tech, which is a system where we often think, not clear even there that it's correct, but maybe more correct, that it's a winner-take-all solution, that's not the case in biopharma because there's so many diseases and so many different types of patients. And even the biggest of the big pharmas, uh, the Pfizer's and the Merck's of the world, 
have decided that there's certain things that they're just not going to do because taking a drug into the clinic and actually going through that process is incredibly expensive. So it's not going to be that there's going to be one pharma company that gives all drugs to all patients. So I think from the perspective of, are we competitive with recursion? Maybe on some things and maybe and probably not on most other things in the same way that you could ask, are we competitive with whatever, Merck or Pfizer? And the answer would be maybe on some things, but not on other things. So I don't think it's that same type of competition. I think the ecosystem benefits and certainly patients benefit from having more players who are deploying the latest techniques to come up with drugs that are more likely to be successful and that get developed in a shorter time frame and at lower cost so that these spiraling costs that we have where currently the cost to develop a successful drug is in current estimates around 2.6 billion dollars and it's not because that one drug took 2.6 billion dollars to develop but rather because of all of the failed drugs that are then amortizing the cost of that one success so the more we can reduce the number of failures the more patients benefit the faster we can get effective drugs to patients not to mention the other side of it which is if we could actually figure out as we were undertaking the development process, what is the right subset of patients for a given drug, then not only would the costs of the clinical trial become lower, but hopefully we would be able to actually, in the course of clinical care, be able to give the right drugs to the right patients so people wouldn't have to go through several iterations of an unsuccessful treatment before we finally found, if we're lucky, the one that actually works for them. So everyone benefits from having us use better methods. I love that answer because I do think that in Silicon Valley, we tend to think of business as being the zero sum game. And I like that sort of in healthcare, it's not. We just need as many people working on these problems as we can possibly get. Exactly. So there are a lot of startups in this space that end up partnering with Big Pharma. And I know that you guys have done some partnerships yourself. And I'm curious how you think about partnerships. Sort of when do you decide that it's time for a partnership or that a partnership would actually be beneficial? And when do you decide, no, we want to take a drug all the way through on our own? Now, that's a great question. So far, we have two partnerships, the one with Gilead, which we actually started the discussion even before Incitra was announced just because of a personal connection. I happened to have someone made an introduction into someone at Gilead. Turned out to be a great partnership for us. It got us off the ground. It really was incredibly validating and helped us figure out what it was that we were putting together as a platform. Uh, the second partnership was more recent with BMS in the area of ALS, and that was an area that we were already in neuroscience, and we felt like they had expertise to offer and some really impressive scientists on their side that could help us refine our thinking in neuroscience. So we got a tremendous amount in different ways from both of those partnerships and really helped us get ourselves off the ground. You know, I think at this point, it's very much a question because as we think about different therapeutic programs that we could potentially put into place, we want to think about, is it something that we want to take through all the way ourselves or at least take it through further than where we currently are? Because the more de-risked you are in a program, the better the economics that you get on it, even if you don't take it all the way through to the, you know, registrational phase three of 50,000 people that you might need for certain cardiovascular indications, for example. So I think that is something that we think of every time. And the criteria are, for example, what does the partner bring into the mix that we are not able to provide for ourselves? So in the case of Gilead, the data set that we got from them was a remarkable asset. You don't get longitudinal data with histopathology samples at the beginning and the end of the trial. That is really hard to get one's hands on. So I think there's partnerships that provide data, partnerships that provide expertise, something that comes in later in the process, like a path to market. We can wait until later to partner that. And with $640 million raised, access to capital is not really a huge factor for us anymore either. So it's really more about what does the partner bring and what do we bring? Can we actually talk a little bit about the path to market and sort of the risk that you talk about? What are the different risk factors that you have to take into consideration when thinking about bringing a drug all the way through? And what does it take to get a drug to market? And I know that that's a big question and that answer itself can be an hour long, but just sort of at a high level, what are the biggest fears that you have as the head of the company 
in thinking about this? The risks and challenges of bringing a drug to market and the uncertainties associated with each of them is actually one of the reasons why we established in Citra as part of the vision for the company is that we think about the journey of a drug from ideation through to approval occasionally as something that encounters multiple forks in the road. And right now, as we get to one of those forks and we figure out which path we want to take, Oftentimes this is based on some kind of historical heuristic or some kind of intuition. And could we build a machine learning model that helps us figure out that this path is maybe slightly better than some of the others and inform some of those decisions so that we can increase the probability of success, reduce the time and cost of all of the failures that we are currently pursuing, all the dead ends. So what are some of those? The first and the one that we really, I think, focused on to begin with is most drugs ultimately fail not because the compound was ineffective, but because the target just does not meaningfully modulate clinical outcome in a human being. It's just the wrong target in the context of the disease. So identifying targets that meaningfully modulate human clinical outcome in a patient segment is really important. And it comprises both the, this target has meaning in this indication and what is the patient population and both our work on human genetic cohorts and on our cell-based systems are both intended to address those two questions because those are absolutely critical. They also help address, to a certain extent, the other aspect that kills many drug programs, which is toxicity or adverse side effects. And some of those, and we're going to make a distinction, which is a really important one between on-target toxicity and off-target toxicity. On-target tox basically means that I have a drug, it modulates this particular mechanism in a human, and a consequence of that modulation is that it also has some adverse side effects because the gene has multiple functions. And if I modulate it in this way, it actually has adverse consequences. The other type of tox is what's called off-target tox, which has more to do with the drug, which is the drug in addition to whatever activity it has against my target, it also has unexpected activity against other targets. And by doing so, it causes additional consequences that are unanticipated. The first of those is something that you might be able to disentangle by, for example, looking at human genetics and asking yourself, are there people in whom, for instance, this target is shut off and yet they're healthy and happy and walking around? If that's the case, then this target is maybe safer. Uh, because I see examples of a genetic modification, one that occurs in the natural population, and I'm able to de-risk that target. This doesn't address the off-target tox, because the off-target tox has nothing to do with the target, has to do with the drug. And so the question is then, how do you de-risk the drug? And that's a whole separate bundle of activities that you can't readily address using genetics, but you need to address using potentially cellular models for standard cellular animal models actually for standard mechanisms of off-target talk. So for example, there is something called drug-induced liver injury. The liver, because everything goes through the liver, is one of the organs that is most readily injured by a drug. Um, it also metabolizes a lot of drugs. And so there's assays and ways to measure off-target effects on the liver. The other three common failure modes on the toxicity are neurotoxicity, cardiac toxicity, and immune responses. And each of those has its own set of things that you need to measure in order to try and assess before you put stuff into a human, whether you're likely to see that kind of consequence. So it's complicated. A lot of questions that need to be answered in that 15 year journey. It's not for nothing. This is really hard. Yeah. So would you say that when you think about sort of the risk profile of a specific drug, you're thinking about the risk around the science as opposed to how many people are out there who need this drug or how big is the market for this specific drug? Are we just not there yet in Citro's life cycle to worry about that quite yet? Well, I think that's a great question. What you're talking about is commercial potential. I would actually say that the market size, while it might be important to a big pharma like a Pfizer or Merck, for small companies, there's many companies that have been quite successful, at least at the beginning, in going after diseases that are targeted to a much smaller patient population. To my mind, the thing that you really want to care about 
is to what extent are you having a very large effect size on the health of the patients that you're targeting? Hmm. I would much rather have a very meaningful, real effect on a group of patients that I can carefully define versus an effect size that you kind of have to squint at for a larger group of patients where you're really not providing a meaningful clinical benefit. And, you know, there's all the costs and adverse side effects that these people are undergoing for what is not clearly a meaningful clinical benefit for them. So I think that's really where it's at is the meaningful clinical benefit versus the total number of patients. On that note, one of the focuses of in situ has been uh, neuroscience. Is that a reason for choosing uh, neuroscience as a potential application here that you felt like there would be a large effect size? So there are several reasons why we selected neuroscience as one of our core areas. First, when you look at the set of diseases with significant unmet need, neuroscience really bubbles to the top as an area where there really are so few effective drugs. And even to the extent that they exist, many of them are really purely symptomatic and don't really change meaningfully the course of the disease. So I think that's one obvious reason. A second one is that those diseases are the ones that are oftentimes, I would say, the hardest to model using animal models because animals just don't get any of the neuroscience diseases that we currently deal with. To the extent that animal models have been created, they're they're pretty much a phenocopy of the disease oftentimes. So for example, the animal models of Alzheimer's disease, they have nothing to do with Alzheimer's. They are really models of amyloid beta toxicity at having the toxic species of the amyloid protein being overexpressed at really toxic levels in the brain of a mouse. And so when you clear out the amyloid beta from that mouse model, the mouse becomes well again, but what you've really cured is amyloid beta toxicity, which may or may not really be the processes underlying Alzheimer's disease, which I think is one of the reasons why so many of these drugs haven't translated into clinical impact on humans, because it's not clear that what they're actually measuring is the right model for Alzheimer's disease. So here's a place where we think human-derived models can really make a very big difference. The third reason is that these are diseases where the kinds of cellular models that we're putting in place really, I think, are very well suited to tackling those because they have a very significant genetic component. The heritability of these diseases is quite high, both across uh, neurodegeneration, uh, neurodevelopmental, as well as neuropsychiatric, all have a very high heritability. And the cellular systems that we can make, neurons and microglia and astrocytes are actually quite tractable. It's possible to create uh, cellular models that we think capture um, the disease in a potentially meaningful way. I think it's a place where the demand is high. There's no other solutions, both in standard of care and in terms of existing models. And the techniques that we have, we think, are potentially well-suited to tackling these diseases. Yeah, I love that. I'd love for you to paint a picture for our listeners of how these cellular models that you've been talking about actually translate into producing a molecule that's the drug. Sure. So I think in many of the examples that are out there in terms of disease models that have been published for some of those neuroscience diseases, you can take cells with different genetic backgrounds. Sometimes you can take what are called an isogenic line, which is a control line and introduce a mutation that you know to be disease causing. And now you've basically created, you can think of it as an in vitro clinical trial, so to speak. You have the healthy population and the unhealthy population, whether it's engineered using CRISPR or taken from a sick versus a healthy patient. And now you can start to measure those cells in a variety of different ways and ask, is there something that I can see that distinguishes the healthy subset from the unhealthy subset? What are the phenotypes that at the cellular level make those look different? One of the nice things that we can do from a machine learning perspective is really deploy the kinds of approaches that we use in other cases, which is to say, I've learned a model that says this is healthy versus unhealthy. I can now take a held out cohort, not of cells, but of patients, and ask, does this model that I've learned predict well the test set? And so that gives us confidence that what we've discovered is truly a meaningful 
distinction, hopefully, between patients and controls. So now you have a screenable system. And that screenable system is something you can now ask, okay, what interventions are there that might revert the unhealthy state to something that looks more like the healthy state? So you can screen in a genetic way using techniques like CRISPR to ask what are modifications at the genetic level that might revert the disease? Those targets may, you know, probably you won't prosecute them using CRISPR as a therapeutic, but at least they give you targets that you can then go and create a drug against. Or you can take a collection of drugs and ask what of those molecules might revert the disease phenotype into a healthy state. This is something called phenotypic screening. It's not something that we invented. Pharma has used phenotypic screening to discover quite a number of drugs. They typically do it relative not to a machine learned phenotype, but rather some something that a human has decided is, this is the thing that I want to revert, the activity level of this protein. And sometimes they're right, sometimes they're wrong, that this is the right readout for disease state. We're using machine learning to guide what it is that we're looking for. And then depending on which of those routes you picked, if you did the genetic screening, then you have a target. And now you're saying, I need to develop a drug towards that target. And depending on which type of drug makes the most sense for that target, is it a small molecule? Is it an antibody? Is it a peptide? You can start to develop using either traditional methods or in our hands, we're actually deploying machine learning towards the molecular design part of this. That's one path. The other path is if you happen to have a molecule that you were screening in that system, then that molecule, if you're really, really lucky, is already a drug. In most cases, it's just something that you then start to optimize towards the many properties that you need to have in order to turn a molecule into something you would actually effectively put in a human. I'm curious how long you think it will be until we have our first drug from in vitro. So I think it really depends on a number of different factors. So one of the things that have emerged from the work that we've started to do with Gilead, for example, is that the kind of machine learned analysis on human cohort data uncovers genetically uh, validated potential targets or hits that are quite actionable and potentially in some cases actually have chemical matter against them that other people have already created and sometimes even put in the human and the risk, but not in the right indication or not in the right patient population. So the fastest path for us to clinic would be to say, here's a target that we have conviction around, and here are drugs that have already been developed. And um, because the drug, the actual molecular design is, is a very long and oftentimes complex and risky process. This is a drug that's been de-risked. Can we take it and either in itself or maybe with some modification, turn that into a drug against my um, patient population. That's the fastest. That would be in an ideal scenario, something that would take, you know, depending on how much it's been de-risked in the hands of others, two to three years before you're in the clinic. That's the fastest. If you don't have that, then it becomes a matter of, okay, you have a new target. What is the fastest that you can develop a therapy around that? And that really depends at that point on the therapeutic modality that you're employing. Things that are more the biologics are much faster to develop because there is a, it's, I don't want to say it's quite engineerable, but there is a process which you go through and it allows you to go through it in a relatively clear set of steps. And it can take, you know, maybe on the short end, 12 to 18 months for certain therapeutic modalities for some others, it might be two years. Uh, and then you start doing the various preclinical work to ensure that you can safely put it in a human. So that's the next level of timeline. You know, developing a new small molecule drug, those are very, they have a lot of attractive properties in the sense that they're orally bioavailable. So you could take it as a pill a day. It's really nice for patients. It's also the thing that has the highest risk of off-target effects because those teeny little molecules even when they bind to your target, they have so many different possibilities that they might also have activity against things that you really don't want them to have activity against. So that's where it becomes a much longer process to convince yourself that what you're doing is really safe. Whereas the larger molecules are ones that they're much more specific because think of it as they have a much larger surface area. So the chance that they also have 
unexpected activity, it's a lot easier to de-risk that. It can still happen, but it's a lot harder for them to have accidental binding to other things. You've spoken about the importance of having good data here. Mm-hmm. If you could dream of a data set uh, and you're maybe building towards such a data set, what would that dream data set look like, which would allow us to solve a lot of the problems of drug discovery being faced today? I think there are, you know, depending on which stage of the drug discovery process you're looking at, there are different data sets that would be hugely enabling. When you're looking at the biology of drug discovery, which is this elucidation of patients and targets and clinical outcomes and different interventions in humans, the best data set I think you could get would be a very large, high quality human data set analogous to the UK Biobank. And the UK Biobank has been a treasure trove for biology discovery. And other countries are moving in that direction with other benefits associated with that. For example, here in the US, we have an effort called All of Us, which is supposedly twice as big as the UK Biobank, which is 500,000. This would be a million. And also importantly, much more diverse because the UK Biobank is very Eurocentric. Um, So that would be an incredible resource when it's finally done. So that's one type of data set. A second type of data set would have to do with some of the cell-based systems that we're starting to build. That's a little bit harder to define because it's not like you have a single universal data set that you would generate because the disease models that you're building for one disease would be very different to that of another. But I think having, I would say, more robust processes, if you will, for taking cells, differentiating them into the appropriate lineages, um, measuring them in the right way, the protocols that we're putting in place are very cutting edge and finicky. So you need to, everyone requires a lot of optimization to really get it to work. This is kind of similar to where machine learning was like 15 years ago, where any machine learning model that you devised needed an expert to really fine tune it and, you know, debug it and write it from scratch. And now we have these wonderful tools that you just kind of take whatever PyTorch off the shelf and you put in, oh, I can download the ResNet code and I can download the Atom code and put it all together. And even a relatively inexperienced machine learning practitioner can create magic with the existing building blocks. We're not quite there on the biology side. So there, I would say it's not so much data sets, but better, more robust protocols and processes. And then when you get to the molecule side, it's amazing how little of the useful data sets are out there in a way that is available to just normal people. A lot of that is locked away in the bowels of the big pharma companies that generated molecules and measured their properties. And they consider that to be like at the core of their being. And so they're not releasing that to the general public. So that type of data set of measurements of different molecules and their properties would be hugely enabling to a community that could apply then machine learning models to build predictors for those properties that are so critical to the drug design. So it's really different pieces require different answers. I know it's a complicated answer to your question. No, definitely. And there's a lot of value to be had by having these large human data sets. One of the disadvantages of having human data sets is that it doesn't allow us to answer what-if questions that well in a way in which you're able to do with uh, some of the systems that you've designed with cells and being able to make genetic changes and observe what happens. How important is causality in terms of the ML models that you're building? Oh, causality is pivotal to what we're doing because ultimately the questions that you're asking are all exactly those what-if questions. If I make this intervention in this human, what is it going to do? That is not a correlational question. That is a causal question. Unlike in diagnostics, for example, where it's really all about, I don't care if it's upstream, downstream, or sideways, all that matters is that it associates significantly with the diagnostic question I'm looking to answer. So in the context of the work we're doing with cell-based systems, the ability to intervene in those systems and measure the what if is actually really critical. When you're dealing with human cohorts, of course, you don't have the ability to really do that causal intervention, which is why we're using human genetics as a sort of um, surrogate for that in the sense that you're saying, look, mother nature made this perturbation in a particular gene. What impact does that have on clinical outcome for those people 
And there's techniques that people have developed like Mendelian randomization, which is effectively using a genetics as what's called an instrumental variable as a way of trying to make that determination. And it's turned out to be quite a powerful technique, both in supporting and in refuting therapeutic hypotheses, some beautiful case studies on that um, that have emerged like LDL versus HDL cholesterol, where which had very different effects from a Mendelian randomization, even though they both had a strong correlation with um, cardiovascular outcomes, but one was supported as causal and the other one not so much. So I think that's a critical question. And of course, it's harder to do that in the human cohort case because you don't really get to perform the right experiment. The experiment that is being performed by Mother Nature is that perturbation was made pre-birth right? That's your genetics was pre-birth genetics. And so what you're seeing as clinical outcome is a lifelong exposure, if you will, of that change to the gene. What you're doing with a clinical intervention is you have a patient at the age of 55 and they're coming in with a certain whatever symptom and disease and you're intervening at that point. Does it help at that point? We don't know. And some of the hypotheses on the failure of the Alzheimer's drugs, we don't know if this is true, is that, well, maybe if we'd made that intervention at birth, it would have made a difference. That is a hypothesis that some people hold as to why many of the drugs have failed. There are other hypotheses, but either way, it's a big risk as to an intervention that you get from genetics. Is this intervention going to help at the time that you're actually administering it? Just going back to data for a quick second, you had mentioned the data sort of being locked in the bowels of big pharma. And I'm curious if you have any thoughts about, I think it was maybe a year or so ago now that there was the announcement that there are a few big pharma companies that were working to share their data amongst each other, maybe using blockchain. Do you have thoughts about that or just generally data sharing among companies all working in this space? So there was an earlier attempt to create a consortial effort of pharma's contributing data towards a shared repository. And that didn't really go very far. Very few pharmas participated in a meaningful way. I think there is an experiment going on right now where maybe if they didn't have to share really the data, only the outcomes of the data as it relates to training contributions of the models, maybe there would be more of like what they call a pre-competitive aspect to it. And there would be more of a willingness to share. I am not inside that effort enough to say whether it's actually working. That is to what extent the data that they're contributing is the real thing versus the stuff around the edges that they don't really care about. So I just honestly don't know if there's going to be real sharing going on. The other side of it is for anyone who's been on the inside of these machine learning efforts, as soon as you start this arm's length training processes, it becomes harder to really extract the maximum value from the data because there's things that you can do if you have access to the true inside of what's the full-blown representation. As soon as you start putting walls, you lose some level of efficiency. How much you lose, I think, is an open question. I'm curious if interpretable AI has been at all helpful in in citro, or have you guys used it at all? So I have a nuanced view on interpretability that not everyone necessarily shares. So I'm going to first say, yes, we have used it because when you're doing discovery work and specifically you're looking at, you know, these cellular systems and you're looking to extract biological insights from whatever machine learning model does in those data sets, having a biologist look at this, even if only to ensure that you're not training on ridiculous artifacts and also having an understanding of how that might relate to other known biologies so you get reinforcement for things, that turns out to be quite important. And so we've invested a certain amount of effort in finding ways to convey to biologists what it is that the machine is looking at. And some of those are, you know, standard techniques like, you know, doing the whatever reverse propagation to see what the machine is looking at, various other simple approaches as well, some of the more sophisticated ones. All that being said, coming to the other side of this, people who are in the diagnostics world have in some ways a more uphill battle to fight because they need to convince clinicians that what it is that they're diagnosing 
is really corresponding to biological reality. And, and so they have sort of more of a convincing effort before people use their technology. For us, we need to convince internal stakeholders enough to just allow them to get enough of the value out of it. Ultimately, the thing that we're producing for the market as a whole is a drug and the drug undergoes as rigorous a vetting process as you could imagine, which is you put it in a randomized clinical trial and it either has a patient benefit or not. And the extent to which the model from which the drug emerged was interpretable or not doesn't matter. The machine hallucinated it. It doesn't matter. What matters is that it does provide meaningful clinical benefit to patients. So I think in that respect, it's not that there is no use for interpretable models, but it doesn't play the same role as it does when you're trying to convince a human to use the model. Daphne, this has been so awesome. We have one final question which is, let's say five years from now, when we meet, what would have changed most about this intersection of computer science and biopharma? Even in the last 12 months, I have seen a dramatic change in the acceptance of these technologies among biopharma people. I mean, when we started in Citro around three years ago, I used to get a lot of skepticism and raised eyebrows and like, Oh yeah, you're in, you're doing this like fringe activity. That's great. And I think even in the last 12 months, we've seen a tremendous shift in people's thinking that it's going to be a very significant shift in how we do drug discovery. And like I said, more broadly, it's not just pharma, it's biology more broadly. Uh, and we're seeing multiple companies in other spaces like, you know, Zymergen, for example, on the biomaterials side or Ginkgo or some of the, you know, liquid biopsy companies and some of the digital image interpretation companies on the diagnostic side, there's a growing acceptance that these are going to become a major force in this market. And then on the pharmaceutical side, I think there's been a shift similarly from people who are thinking, yeah, it's going to be kind of like x-ray crystallography. We're going to use it every once in a while, but it's not going to be like the core of what we do. And I think the analogy is not to x-ray crystallography. The analogy is to computers. That is, it's going to be the tool that you use in many, many different aspects of drug discovery and development. It's gonna be hard to do without it. And I think that is in five years, that recognition will have permeated and we will just be using this as a tool in so much of what we do. That's such a great vision. Um, I remember myself and several of my colleagues coming to one of your talks a couple of years ago, maybe, and you laid out this vision or a similar one and I think all of us walked away just feeling inspired and energized by the vision that you laid out. So uh, thank you for inspiring myself and several others in the field to, to try to make an impact here. And thank you for being on the show with us. No, thank you. And I'm hoping I inspired some people to go into this field and help make a difference because I think this is going to be the field of the next 20 years is when you look back 20 years from now and you say, what field has impacted humankind the most? I think this is, I don't know if it's going to be the top one, uh, but it's going to be in the top three. And by that, I mean digital biology in the broadest sense. I think it's going to be hugely impactful. And that's all, folks. A big thank you to Dr. Daphne Kohler for talking to us today. And for the last time this season, thank you, gracias, grazie for listening. We're your hosts, Pranav and Adriel, and until next time, stay safe and stay healthy. The AI Health Podcast is produced and edited by Oishi Banerjee. Music by Ethan A. Chi. If you like what you just heard, let a friend know. Subscribe to the show and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Spotify and connect with us on Twitter at AI Health Podcast.